Hello, welcome to Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Stories and Support. My name is Amory Zanzel and I came out later in life. I am an, a lesbian, an ordained minister, a mom, a partner to a wonderful woman, and I coach people through the coming out process later in life. I created this series because I believe that through story and story sharing, we can learn, discover, and connect with each other. Listening to other stories can often help us hear our own. Today joining me is Judy Wilson, a native Southerner, reader, writer, web developer, and the owner of Site Shack. And she's also a former resident of San Francisco and pre-COVID days, an avid traveler. Judy is also one of my, my first guests to have that I've had on that didn't come out later in life. She came out earlier. So welcome, Judy. It's nice to have you. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I'm very happy to be here and share my story. I'm very excited to hear this. So, <laughs> so Judy, tell me your story. Oh, well, uh, it started a long time ago. It started uh, in the, probably during high school when I realized that as I saw it, I was going through a phase where I was, I went to an all girls Catholic high school. And so, um, which was nice. I loved my high school. And, um, and I noticed, and I had noticed for a while for back in, you know, grade school, really, that I was, uh, found my classmates and friends generally uh, of the female side to be particularly interesting and engaging. And I enjoyed their company a great deal. Mm -hmm. And I just figured that was kind of an average thing and um, uh, nothing unusual. Um, as a child, I did have um, uh, an attraction to things like cowboy and Indian sets, uh, clothing with cow with a cowboy, not really a cowgirl, not like uh, Annie Oakley or something or Dale Evans, but a cowboy theme you know I had the hat for Christmas when I was seven I got the cowboy outfit um complete with guns boots all black um mm. and I thought it looked good and I remember being uh, upset because I couldn't wear that to mass we had to go to Sunday mass of course uh, or rather mass on uh, Christmas day and um my sister uh 10, 10 months younger than I was was very feminine and would frequently <laughs> comment on my choice of clothing mm. uh, giving me some sense that and of course my being aware of all of our friends who you know they wore dresses and skirts and you know were excited about boys and that kind of thing and I shared none of that and so I was uh, consequently aware that I was I was not really in the mainstream both in mm -hmm. terms of my dress, my uh, pleasures, reading, playing with my cowboy sets, farm sets, all of that, the little tiny people, uh, the horses, the cows, all of that. And um, in any event, by the time I was, um, I don't know, 17 or 18, 
uh, I became aware that I had a, preferred the company of girls to boys. And of course that didn't go away. And um, in um, probably about, I don't know, 19, the late 1960s, early uh, 70s, I fell in love with my roommate. Were you and in college then yet? I had, I, I had left college at that point and um, a polite way of saying, I guess, that I dropped out of college. I dropped out of college when I was 19. And uh, everything was too hard. Everything in my life was too hard. And I could not make this thing go away where I was attracted to so many classmates, mm -hmm. friends, etc. And um, and it just became more persistent. I kept thinking it would go away, these feelings. And, and, uh, and they didn't. And um, so I moved in with a friend who from high school and college. And, uh, and, and as we spent more time together, I realized I was falling in love with her. And I had sexual feelings toward her. And I started freaking out and drinking a lot and realized this was this was not going to get me anywhere you know mm -hmm. that i was on this train and i was headed off the tracks you know mm -hmm. well i can and, as uh, being raised catholic myself i can imagine yeah the catholic thing was very prominent we and i come from a big catholic family that um you know like a cousin was a nun and pretty orthodox catholic very traditional mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um pre-vatican II catholic too well okay. i mean sort of pre-post but still you know yeah. very very I, I can only imagine what that was like the when i was until i was in the eighth grade mass was still in latin then, yeah and mm -hmm. so it was very serious it was very serious and uh, uh all that orthodoxy so um, you fell in love with your friend and you realized that the train was going off the tracks so what happened fast <laughs> and, uh, I knew I had to do something. At that time, I couldn't possibly say the word gay to myself. Mm -hmm. That was like curtains. That was, that was, who would I be? How would I exist? Mm -hmm. I thought if there were gay people in the United States, there were maybe 500. Mm -hmm. And they all lived in New York City, mm -hmm. probably Greenwich Village. I had never been out of the South before. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just stupefying to me. So what I did was I left Memphis, which is where I shared the home with my roommate, mm -hmm. and then moved back to Nashville, moved into my parents' house, and found the name of a psychiatrist in the phone book. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know how I chose this particular psychiatrist, but I called him and I made an appointment mm -hmm. and I went to see him. And I knew that I was gonna have to use the word maybe gay in this and I was mm -hmm. going to have to out myself to this person who I, whose name I chose from the phone book. So, but I had to do something. I couldn't live, I just, the pain was just and confusion was so 
enormous. So I went in to see him and I chose words when he's, you know, like he's, he's like uh, asking, uh, why are you here? You know, what's going on with you? And so I chose the most clinical sounding words I could think of. And so this would just be an intellectual discussion, right? We would have sort of colleague to colleague, a, uh, you know, tasteful uh, discussion. I was also aware that he might reach over and pick up his phone and call, I don't know, some mental health organization, something could happen to me. I have known women in my life who had shock treatment for being gay. Well, and we need to also too, like it was such a different generation and, you know, being, was the DSM still, was being, was that still considered? I missed the DSM by about, they had taken gay out of the DSM just a few months before I went in there. Which is what the psychiatrists and psychologists use to diagnose people. If you don't know what it is. And I know, I'm just saying for our our listeners. Yeah. So, so you didn't know what the hell was going to happen to you. But I, it couldn't be any worse, honestly, oh. than what I was going through. And I had to, I had to move to another step with this. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stay like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like I was lying to everyone and I would have to lie for the rest of my life if I chose to take this path. And mm-hmm. what would the path even look like? Where, where Would I even meet anybody ever who felt like I did? And the films and, and uh, books and so on at that time were not encouraging. Um, yeah. Movies at that time were, were really uh, terrible and crude. And I used to see a lot of independent films uh, with my roommate. Sometimes we would see a film every day. I hardly ever worked. I was just sort of out of it in a way. And uh, there was a there were a lot of very uh, frightening movies about mm-hmm. what happened to gay people mm-hmm. and um, just emotionally in terms of their lonely, miserable, perverted life. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I sit down, I start talking to this psychiatrist. He, he, I, even after I've given him this strangely cloaked statement about myself being gay, he didn't seem really bothered he didn't pick up a telephone he didn't look at the cops (laughs) exactly or asked me to leave or something like that it was very nonplussed about the whole thing so over the course of about three or four months I really loved this man Mm -hmm. and uh he told me and none of it was sensational, nothing, you know, I expected some sort of brouhaha, but he, he said two, two men and two women can live together as happily and healthily as a heterosexual couple. That was That's so forward for that. Radical. 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 I, I couldn't believe, I couldn't, he, I really loved him. He led me from his place of sheer terror and this person I had loved me and and liked for all these years had turned into this kind of gorilla or this kind of monster freak and he Mm. took me back to me Mm. and um my parents were alcoholics I had no chance of communicating anything to them about my fears or concerns and mostly they seemed to regard me as some kind of like oddball. And, uh, and 
his name was Creecraft, Dr. Creecraft, and he and he really saved my life. Quick question: Do you was he gay? No, no, uh, no, not at all. And uh, that is so interesting for that time period to to meet a straight doctor that was so accepting. Oh, people have been saying that to me ever since then, and I was uh, probably uh, twenty one, going on twenty, you know. Well, Mike from 22 when I saw him. Well, the universe had other plans for you. <laughs> it, it had many plans for me. <laughs> so did you leave the South then? Uh, After you were done? No, what, what happened, I still didn't know any gay people. So, but I felt good, you know, I felt like, oh, I'm not a freak. And so I, my sister and I had, my parents went to Florida with my other siblings for like a week. My sister and I took, took care of the house in their absence. And that meant a gigantic party. And um, so an, a, an ex-boyfriend of my sister's came up, came to this party, Jerry, and um, who I later found out was gay. He, I was not as closeted as he was after a little bit. He said, oh, they're looking for somebody. Uh, I was of course jobless, which I frequently was at that time. They're looking for somebody down actually around music row mm -hmm. and for this restaurant they're opening and talk to this guy named rick shell go down there and that you know you'll get a job i'm like oh okay so i had restaurant experience it was no big deal so i went down and i go i find rick shell and i go up and and um he looks at me and he says uh, i've been waiting for him for a while he's very busy and um he said uh all good things come to you you found me you know and he said, all good things come to she who waits, which was apocryphal, if that's the word, or mm -hmm. very uh, prescient or anyway. Um, so he hired me and it blew open my life in the most extraordinary ways. So what restaurant was it in Nashville? It was called Jocks. It's okay. um, down on Division Street, right mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. um, and Jerry was there, of course, my sister's ex, who told me about the place. And he would wink at me sometimes. It was called Mozart Square. There were three restaurants and a little dinner club thing, uh, theater club. And uh, uh, Jerry would say, Judy, there's no, what did he say? There's no corners on, there's no corners on the square meaning there's, it's not nothing straight. <laughs> and I walked into this like group of these gay people who, all of whom I loved mm -hmm. and sort of, we were all sort of sometimes sleeping with each other and this mm -hmm. and that as it developed. And um, uh, they were mostly at Vanderbilt artists, uh, Rick Shell was gay. Mm -hmm. His roommate I fell in love with, which is a gay, who was a gay man who, mm -hmm. who died just a year ago. And, and uh, uh, these were worldly people who were really brilliant people. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, cook at Jocks was a black woman uh, named Courtney. And, uh, she, and she, 
we discovered we both read a lot and she gave me a book. It was the uh, journals of Andre Gide who, or Gide, Gide um, and uh, who was of course a gay author. I didn't know about any gay authors except Gertrude Stein who terrified me. And, um, <laughs> and I didn't like her writing. And, uh, and so I thought this woman Courtney was probably, she spoke, this is a long time ago. She spoke very literate. She was very literate and very uh, amazing use of language. And mm -hmm. so I was returning the book to her one night and, and I thought she probably had seven or eight kids and had pulled herself up just by dint of will. Mm -hmm. And uh, because that's how I knew African-American people. You I had mean, stereotypes in your head. Exactly, very right. much so. And, and I thought she was admirable for that imagined, this reason I imagined. And so I followed her out to her car one night to return, give the book back to her. I walked out with her and she was driving a, a black MG convertible with an automatic transmission. Mm -hmm. And it just threatened a severe case of your stereotypes. Oh, this is probably not. So what is this? And, uh, and, uh, and then she had a sister, a half sister who worked there too named Bobby, who I was the first woman I had, however, was with and, and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and who I loved and was in love with until she died of cancer yeah. back in the um, 90s. And um, so Courtney went to college at Ithaca College and she was on sort of a sabbatical break thing. And so we started hanging out. I hung out with all of them. They one night had asked me at the beginning of this if I wanted to go downtown with them. And mm -hmm. that meant these cheesy, really, you know, like the jungle, these bars in downtown Nashville, gay bars. and. Um, kind of rough trade in a way, but the only thing there was that was here. And so I went downtown with him this one night and I didn't know him very well at that point. And, and um, I kept, I realized we were in a gay bar mm -hmm. and I'm looking and looking and looking. And one of them said, everybody would call me Wilson in those days. I said, Wilson, what's the matter? And I said, it's a gay bar, something like that. And I remember Hugh, the gay man who was roommates with Rick Show, looking at me and he said, Wilson, with his cigarette, we're all gay. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. They called you out. They did. And, and I was, I, and eventually I moved to, up to Ithaca with Courtney. And, mm -hmm. you know, when she went back to Ithaca College and, oh, Absolutely. Well, I've had many, many, many happy periods of my life. That was one of the happiest. And I just slipped right into that very progressive town, that college town, Cornell and Ithaca College. Mm -hmm. I've been to Ithaca. I lived in a tent for a while with everybody and we all lived in tents and we built a sweat lodge and we smoked a lot of pot and did acid <laughs> and drank and uh, and uh, then I uh, hooked up with a couple of them, a couple of my friends there, and we moved to Tucson and mm -hmm. uh, met someone there I was with for about seven years. And then 
So can I ask you a quick question? Would you consider yourself a hippie? Were you a hippie during that time? Oh yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it and it it it, it I, I never could have predicted any of that. No. And and I you know, knowing where you come from and Catholicism and everything like that, if you were a straight girl, you would have gotten married to a guy in somewhere in Nashville, you know what I mean? That your life would have been probably a lot less colorful. Oh, I would have had, yes, indeed, of course. I mean, it might have changed, you know, when you got older, when you get hit, you know, but you probably would have followed the trajectory most women your age followed that were raised Catholic and, you know, they would, you know, like, like the girls you hung out with that had the pretty dresses on when you were little. That's exactly correct. And they all got married and had babies and did all that. And I was absolutely terrified that that would happen to me, just because I didn't know no other choice. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to Tucson. So then you keep going west. <laughs> well, I came back here for some few years and uh, with this woman I was involved with and, uh, and we split up. And another thing that I never could have imagined in my wildest days, um, I've never... I, I always wanted to leave Nashville. And so I'm like, okay, I'll be here for, you know. And then I was living on a commune in Murfreesboro, the little town, not so little anymore outside of Nashville, the heterosexual commune, but, you know, it was pretty, pretty whoever you wanted to sleep with. Yeah. Um, and uh, this uh, Dutch woman came, came to town, came to Murfreesboro because she had a friend there who was at school mm-hmm. there. And, and I, I, uh, I fell in love with her mm-hmm. and I really fell in love. And uh, she was only here for a short while and she was gonna go out and out West and she went to San Francisco. So I thought, hmm, mm-hmm. I really can't imagine living the rest of my life without this person. Mm-hmm. And so I got on a uh, Continental Trailways. Greyhound was on, on strike. I got on a Continental Trailways. There was one seat left when I got on. And, uh, and I knew, I knew as it pulled out of the station, it was such an ill-advised trip. I had no money. And um, my friend, lover, whatever, wasn't, I don't think she knew at that point that I was coming out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was possessed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as I moved down, the bus moved down I-40 West, which I'd traveled on many times. I thought I won't see this again for a long time. Was that true? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 When I left Memphis earlier, I thought I, I know I'll, I'll never I'll never live in Memphis again, mm-hmm. and that was true. Mm-hmm. I've had those kinds of things many times in my life, mm-hmm. and they're all true. I even thought that once about winning a television set, and, and it worked. <laughs> I'd given my TV away to a guy who had AIDS, and uh, and I thought I don't need a TV, mm-hmm. and then I got one at this Christmas party. That's it. 
So was this, so you get out to San Francisco, what year was it? 83. Okay, my goodness. What a year to get out to San Francisco, huh? It was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of, it was everything. It was really everything. It was un, I, nothing I could ever have imagined. Mm -hmm. And 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 I would say those were those. I was there seventeen years, the happiest years of my life. Why? I'm curious. Why do you say that? Because you you know it's so funny listening to talk. You talk about um, you know early your waitress years in Nashville when you were in your early twenties. You have such a look of joy on your face descri describing it and how much fun you had and everything like that. So why was those seventeen years? I mean, you know, it, it, for people, you know, that was right in the middle of the AIDS crisis in the middle of San Francisco. So, you know, I'd love to hear why it was so wonderful. Because for many reasons, one was the first, the, the, the primary reason I think is because there was no border, no dividing line between being queer and being straight. Mm -hmm. Anywhere, any job I had, any, anything, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were so many of us, mm -hmm. tons. Yeah. So, and, huh? So like you were a majority. Yes, in, in effect. I mean, we yeah. were in the politics, we were in this, we were in that. Um, and, um, and I loved how brave we all were. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, everyone, there were a few exceptions, had come from other parts of the country mm -hmm. and had survived the usual bullying and the parental disdain and the uh, shame, the uh, fear. Mm -hmm. I think more so for men than women because men had a harder time passing. Mm -hmm. And these were men and women who let themselves shine, who shined mm -hmm. of every type, every stripe. Mm -hmm. uh, even the bars, you know, you'd have a, you know, like a leather bar, a daddy bar, mm -hmm. or, you know, there were like six or seven lesbian bars. Uh, there was a, you know, like a Filipino women's bar. Mm -hmm. and, and then there was Amelia's, which had everybody. Mm -hmm. And, and there was... California with its beautiful, beautiful scenery and the ocean. And I could be at the ocean in 30 minutes, maybe after I left work. Mm -hmm. There was a sense of humor that was so brilliant. So many people had this extraordinary sense of humor. And you could see it everywhere, everybody, in the billboards and um, uh, the graffiti on the billboards, which <laughs> were great. Um, and there was a gentleness too. Mm -hmm. I never felt 
like anybody was thinking while they talked to me or looked at me that they found me contemptible, which I had experienced here. Mm -hmm. Not really in Tucson, but Tucson was so weird. You know, everybody had their own little category and everybody kind of looked, and, but, you know, everybody got along well enough. And, and uh, Ithaca was, of course, a college town, but I was, uh, it's a small town. You know, it mm -hmm. was, and I'm sure it still is to some extent. But San Francisco was a dream. Mm -hmm. it, it was so much physical beauty there going up a hill and coming down and there's the bay and there's mm -hmm. Alcatraz or the Golden Gate Bridge. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and my friends were so wonderful and funny. And, mm -hmm. and I didn't feel like a nut or crazy or anything like that. You just felt normal. I felt normal. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on one second. Okay. Sure. So you felt normal. Yeah. So what did you do in San Francisco, Judy? What did you do for a living? <laughs> my usual, uh, I think the word is peripatetic in my usual random way. Um, I, I always see myself as the 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 uh, the tarot deck, the mm -hmm. uh, character, the fool. And I don't <laughs> not saying I'm a fool. I was. I've always had this sort of like. I think I stopped at about seventeen or so, and I just sort of like. Ah, dee, dee, dee. I could always get a job, always, mm -hmm. and until like it reached the point where nobody would hire me in the types of jobs I was applying for. I was writing a murder mystery at that time, set in San Francisco, that was later. I, um, oh gosh, I worked at a great restaurant. The, the ca it was called Cafe San Marcos. It's a, one of the funniest jobs I've ever worked in. And same for Catholic Charities. I eventually went to Catholic Charities and worked there and loved so, Catholic Charities. So, so, being gay in San Francisco and working for Catholic Charities, was there any problem with that? I was, I had some unease about taking the job. It was a temp job. I tempt a lot because I was writing my um, murder mystery in Murder on the 22 Fillmore. Um, and, um, and I was taking classes at uh, City College. Mm -hmm. uh, which I didn't know you could do. I didn't know there was a thing about, there was such a thing as a city college. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I thought I was too old to go back to college. And a friend of mine pretty much drugged me back to city college and uh, to take a computer class. And I, this is when P PCs were coming, uh, making an, a, their first appearance. And I just fell in love with programming computers, all of it. And, um, so, yeah, I thought, I don't know about Catholic Charities, but everything was so loose there, you know, you didn't mm -hmm. know. So, and I mean, I was way past the point of being. Uh, caring, <laughs> people thought. Caring or being, yeah, being concerned or being mm -hmm. like in San Francisco, I mean, People were, we were nothing new. I mean, you know, gay people were everywhere. And I I just, I guess I assumed they would be there too. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was a, an absolutely wonderful organization. We had, uh, it was over three counties. It was an archdiocese. 
uh, about a $21 million a year budget. And we had two or three AIDS residential facilities. And uh, we had a facility for women who were HIV positive, who had children. The children may or may not have been HIV positive. Mm -hmm. And um, I uh, started, I got into, I uh, was hired into the development department and I did all the graphic design. I built a website for them, my first professional website. And um, they, were, they were just, it was a crazy, funny, wonderful, generous organization. And uh, people seemed so motivated by a kind heart. Mm -hmm. And there were, there were a lot of gay Catholics that we would stand around and talk about, share funny stories from all over the U.S. about being in, you know, Catholic high school or families in these giant families, you know, with, where nobody, I mean, they were just like wild families because there was. How really big was your, like how, you have a, you're from a big family. Well, there were six of us. Yeah, I'm from five. So. Yeah, so you know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild. It's like a big party. Well, it's so funny because um, my partner is from her family. Well, actually, ironically, her family was a his, mine, and ours family, and there were six of them. But she says that most typically people have two or three kids in the South, not six and seven and stuff. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Some 12. Yeah. Some 12, 13. So um, I, I have some like real questions of curiosity. Um, you were in San Francisco during the AIDS crisis. What was that like in the sense of the dawning realization? Ben, here we are in the middle of COVID-19, the next big um, uh, virus crisis to hit the world. Right. I guess my question is, what are the similarities have you seen? Um, and like we first started talking in the beginning and you asked me, how are you doing tonight? And I'm like, yeah, COVID, you know? And you said, yeah, in March, I thought it was gonna be just this, you know, little thing and, and I wasn't too upset about it, but now I realize it's something much more serious. So I'm just curious how that was similar and how it was different. And I know there's some obvious things, but some people don't know these things. So how was it? Like, how was it similar to what we've been going through the last year? And how is it different? So let's maybe start with similar first. I would say there are a lot of similarities. Um, I became aware of AIDS when I was still in Tennessee, probably the year before I moved to San Francisco. And I remember th th there was a man named Bobby Campbell who was called himself the AIDS poster child. He, he and his partner were on the cover of Time Magazine mm -hmm. uh, the year before I moved out there. And uh, I thought, oh, and I had a, a, a very good friend here who was very worried about it. I remember telling him, oh, you know, they'll, they'll find something, you know, to this AIDS thing, this gay cancer thing. And um, so I moved out there. And at that point, the numbers were just growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. And and I worked at the restaurant, Cafe San Marcos, with every, I think, oh, there was one straight woman who worked there. 
Joan Diamond. And uh, she's a character, everybody was a character, I think. And mm -hmm. um, uh, these were all almost all men. And mm -hmm. they started dying. Mm -hmm. And uh, one was a friend of mine. And somebody said, Jim Slick has AIDS. Somebody came into work and said, Jim Slick has AIDS. I don't know that we called it AIDS then. And, um, and I just felt this sort of drenching horror. And a, a woman I was seeing at the time, her brother lived in New York, in New York. And she came in one night. I still thought it was over there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Like you do COVID, you know, you just think, oh, you know, it's some... It's it's happening over here somewhere. Well, oh. yeah, and in March it was happening over there, and now that's exactly right. December, and like everybody knows somebody, and and it's just spread like wildfire so mm -hmm. quickly, both mm -hmm. COVID and AIDS. Mm -hmm. And uh, this uh, woman I was seeing, whose brother was in New York, she came into the restaurant one night, and she said, uh, "Terry, her brother had pneumonia, a pneumocystis pneumonia," and 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 I said, "Well, that's it's pneumonia. They'll they'll." get you know that's okay and um and i remember the conversation perfectly and she said no you don't understand and uh it, it's um it's a symptom of aids and at that time the life expectancy for aids was about 18 months mm -hmm. and um covid who knows you know it's the same sort of there's so many question marks all around it and they're all mm -hmm. terrifying mm -hmm. and um so I remember that night when she told me that I, I ran across the street, Castro Street, to, to there was a Crown Books over there, and I went in there. And as a measure of how little it had uh, come into our lives, AIDS had come into our lives. There's a this bookstore back in the corner. There was a shelf, I think, on gay men or something. And down at the bottom, there were about six books on this new virus. Mm -hmm. And I opened one up and I looked in it and found, and pneumocystis was something that ordinarily happened to old men, old people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it, I just had the shock that her brother was going to die and he lived for maybe a year. Mm. And, um, and it just happened everywhere. It was everywhere. It was everywhere. And, and, and I wanted to, uh, uh, I was freaking out. Guys would come in and into the restaurant and they'd show me something on their arm and say, is this a, a capital sarcoma? It's sarcoma, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and they didn't, or they'd have shingles and, and uh, thrush and things like that. And um, there's a little news, newspaper called the Bay Area Reporter, which was a gay newspaper. There were several and um, it had obituaries in it and every guys that we had a break room and we'd be sitting back there and we'd see people we knew a lot of the guys would see people they knew who had died and these are 27 30 36 and just these beautiful men and yeah. i don't mean just physical they just they were so they shined Mm -hmm. And it was just, um, it was crushing. It was unbearable. I, I thought I would go back to Nashville. And for some reason, I thought that, that I can't handle this. I'm going to go. I still thought I was going to go to hell as a gay person. So. Um, so when you heard all the language that 
the evangelical evangelicals and oh, yeah. some politicians used that <laughs> it was God's scourge. Did did Catholic Judy still believe that? Yeah, I, I thought I thought. I mean, I have never really replaced, if you want to use that word, all that Catholic indoctrination. And I was. Oh, I, it's pretty deep. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it goes right through. And, uh, and then I was afraid I would get it. There was no clear evidence that. Well, you know what Eleanor Schmiel said about the lesbians. What did she say? I can't they remember. were the chosen people. <laughs> she said, she said that she was the president of now and she was asked if that was AIDS the scourge for the the um uh, God's God's curse on the on homosexuals and she said well if it's God's curse then the lesbians are the chosen people because they had the like lowest incident oh absolutely uh, so there, there goes your theory right out the window that it's oh, got yeah. Yeah, boom. <laughs> I was still afraid, you know, with, with, with the God thing, you feel like they've got their finger on you, right? It's a mm -hmm. very personal one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. And it's like, okay, Judy, you know, you're, you're a goner. You're out of here. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't go to confession that time when you had the opportunity to, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was nuts at that because nobody really knew what was going on. And I remember they put out a, uh, one of the, um, there were different AIDS organizations that, that developed that came up around this in San Francisco. And one of them had put out a safe sex pamphlet mm -hmm. it was on top of the cigarette machine in the restaurant. And I looked at it and I started reading it. I really didn't know what some of those things even meant. Mm -hmm. And I had a good friend, John, at the restaurant and, and uh, who became a good friend who, who died in the 90s of AIDS, actually. And, and um, so he started telling me what everything meant. I thought, wow. Wow, a whole new world. <laughs> everything was a new world. I, 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 I just, um, so I felt immediately embraced when I, when I moved to San Francisco. So question though a government response which basically the government ignored the AIDS crisis and oh wait a minute they've ignored the COVID crisis too have you seen similarities in that as well and and I experience, that, did, did you have out like outrage I mean did the community I mean I know the community tremendous had outrage yeah. tremendous toward Reagan toward Reagan mm -hmm. and uh I hated those people, mm -hmm. but I was in here loathing Trump, mm -hmm. not too pretty accurate word. I'm surrounded by a lot of people who think he's just fabulous, mm -hmm. including, I think, I'm pretty sure, still members of my family. In, in San Francisco, and a lot of people, anti-vaxxers are... And then, but in San Francisco, everybody felt that way. Yeah. So I felt totally comfortable. I mean, people would just, people, people would, you know, you could say whatever you wanted. You could think however you, you know, it was so open and everybody hated Reagan. And that goofball and uh, who uh, made, made AIDS jokes. Reagan didn't even mention AIDS until the no. 
until his second term. And I, I believe that's accurate. And, he, and when he mentioned it, he mentioned about getting tested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, know. you know, Tanda, my partner and I were talking the other day about the AIDS crisis. And, and although such a horrible, horrible, horrible tragedy, that there is some belief that it really advanced the cause of, of, of equality for gay people in the United States. Mm -hmm. We were talking about that and we were talking about um, how people just didn't give a shit anymore. <laughs> they started coming out because when you, when you are, when, when your death is your option, you have no more, you don't give a shit, you don't care. <laughs> you know, you just don't care. And so these brave men and occasional women who are dying because of other things from, because of the AIDS crisis just didn't care anymore. And they were, they outed, they, they like, they started to come out all, people started to come out all over the place. And, you know, all of a sudden, I think that the AIDS crisis made the home, the gay community um, visible to people that never saw them before. Do you think that, I mean, you're the one who went, lived through this. So what are you, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. I think it's true. I think that there was, also a confluence of, you know, Ellen DeGeneres came out. You had yeah. really- It was played. in the 90s, late 90s. Yeah. yeah. But um, I think, I remember when Rock Hudson died. Yep. He was so obviously sick, he was so gaunt. Yeah, he was with Doris and, Day too. I remember that very well. And, well. Um, yeah. and you had Princess die coming, going into, I think she did the unthinkable thing of hugging a- She embraced uh, an AIDS child. Uh -huh. And there were responses of all types, I think in this country and then globally as mm -hmm. a consequence of A, not being able to hide, like with raw cuts and not being able to hide it. And also pe people, gay men, women and their all their supporters their families starting to say this is not okay you know mm -hmm. you can't treat somebody this way and so from my point of view i felt like aids was bringing support to the gay community everywhere we were mm -hmm. in the sense that people watched how we were being treated it, from the president on down and people who was that moron that said Tinky Winky was gay because oh, oh, I don't know. From England, he's one of the Teletubbies. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Know. I can remember. I remember someone saying that, but I. Oh, it was um. It was one was of the Pat Robertson. Yeah, yeah. yeah Pat it was Robertson. Just absurd, and people. I mean, the 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 absurdity of this evangelical. Uh, animus toward gay people was just amplified and amplified by these bizarre statements. Trent Lott saying, Senator from uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi, I think, saying he saw uh, homosexuality as, as, as basically the same thing as a disease like uh, uh, shoplifting, um, whatever the, I mean, it's like, no, it's not. And then they found the gay gene mm -hmm. and and it's like, which I would, which scared me. I thought, what if they found the gay gene and no more gays? And you know, 
So it was a time, it was just a time of such really just what is happening here? But I felt so safe in the Bay Area, I felt completely safe and surrounded by my compatriots. Well, and I can imagine, you know, you said 17 years there and in going through what you went through, you saw probably the best of humanity during that time because when people are really struggling you know like I worked in hospice for eight, eight years and people are always like oh that must be so hard no I it was hard in a way but I saw so many incredibly wonderful and touching things oh that I never would have seen if I hadn't worked in hospice it's, so it's it, kind of a miracle I think uh yeah yeah, you know, that, and so I think that it sounds like that it had this incredible experience of, mm-hmm. of being with your people, which is, mm-hmm. which is one of the best things about when you, like for me, when I came out, like mm-hmm. finally being with my people, even though I used to like stare at them and wave from the sidelines. <laughs> I'm glad you joined us. I'm glad you I'm glad I joined one us. One of your people. Welcome. Welcome. No, well, you know, I, I also think, you know, I always say to people, you know, there is a real gift of having lived in the straight world for most of my life is that um, I don't put up, like sometimes people, I understand, I have a real understanding of what it's like to live in the straight world and to now live as a gay person for the last five years. And um, I feel like it's almost a superpower because <laughs> in a sense, I don't put up with any of, I like, I really can't put up with any of the bullshit. Like, because I am, I am so incensed that you're gonna actually see me differently who, because of who I go home to at uh-huh. night and uh-huh. who I sleep with. Mm-hmm. that's just like like it's the outrage it's like that's just stupid <laughs> I don't have time for this so you know and there's a lot of and and one of the reasons I you know want to interview people that are have been out for a while because I feel like you guys people they you've just been through a lot and you've seen a lot and I think a lot of times because we've achieved some sort of equality over the last 10 years um people quickly forget <laughs> that just a generation ago. That's right. Like yeah, my young friends that are in their late 20s, early 30s, mm-hmm. sometimes they have no clue. They're telling me, you know, I don't really believe in marriage, but I'm getting, you know, I'm gonna marry her because, you know, and it's like, oh my God, honey, <laughs> people have fought and died for this so that you yeah, can be they married. Have. They yeah. have, they absolutely have and suffered mm-hmm. um, uh, in their lives, being disowned, being, um, Mm-hmm. And there are some of these kids are disowned too, but they don't understand the, 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 what, how, how quickly things have changed in yeah. the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. They have changed. A lot. And they have changed a lot. Like you and I doing this, talking to each other, and I'm going to put this out into the public world. Like 40 years ago, people wouldn't have done this. You might've had somebody do it, but only gay people would hear it, you know? Well, as somebody who writes and has, you know, it's only been in the last maybe 10 years that I feel comfortable writing in in a, as as a queer Mm -hmm. and, uh, 
when I started writing and sending stuff out back in my 20s, um, I remember writing a short story and pretending like I was straight. I was, uh, I think I was writing as a male, the narrator was a male and writing because his wife had died and, uh, and some of it I blended in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief and everything like that. And I thought, oh God, and I remember another, why am I doing this? But I could never, I knew that if I tried to cross that line um, and write as me with my partner and so forth as a lesbian, that was, I wasn't gonna win any friends. Well, and also your genre was gonna become this small you know what i mean because oh, yeah, yeah, there was always les there yeah. was always queer literature but it was a very very small audience and you wouldn't yeah, get yeah. A, like a big publisher or anything like that uh, sarah waters being i think one of the first exceptions to the british uh, uh lesbian uh, novelist who's just like oh my god she's so good mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah Can i ask you i get a couple first of all i could talk to you forever um, so, but we've got to wrap this up. <laughs> so what have you seen that changed the most since you came out back in the early mid seventies? What's changed the most? Oh my God. Any, uh, more than one thing. Marriage equality. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can talk about Oh, gays are fine. Oh, I've got a gay sister who I just love, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when it's when it was legislated at the top level, the top judicial level, and you had a woman like Edie Windsor Pretty step forward, somebody else who came out even way before I did. Not well, definitely. Well, and, and and also too, I mean like her and her what have you ever seen their documentary um i love that documentary I too i've seen it more than i've one. seen it more than once too i love the way thea loves her i like and it is so well first of all edie was hot at 75 so she was, hot. <laughs> yeah. was yeah. a very yeah. beautiful hot woman so no yeah. wonder her her wife loved her so yeah. much but um well they had the the means to fight mm -hmm. this and you know and, and and but also too like i don't think the straight world realized like what the importance of marriage no, for us no, legally no. is you know what i mean it, that is it was so incredibly important that what thea and edie did well Edie did because Thea had passed. And yeah. what had happened is um, Thea went, Edie went to inherit the estate and she had to pay mm -hmm. so much more taxes because if she had been married to Thea legal, legal, you know, legally, she wouldn't have had to pay the taxes. That's right. You know, that's things right. like that, like, like things that straight people don't even think about, <laughs> but that's a reality. You couldn't correct, collect your, wife, your husband or wife's social security. That's right, that's right. And that's just some of it. I mean, you know, that that's, uh, but that was the part that attracted attention because it was legalized, it was codified, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but isn't it interesting, Judy, if you think about it, how in, like homophobia is codified too, or it used to be codified in, oh, yeah. in the law. 
-hmm. you know, and then the way we take it away is through law, you know, and that's interesting because people don't think about how much, um, how much, you know, like in Texas back in the nineties, if you owned more than five dildos, <laughs> like, I don't know how they got to the number five, but if you own more, yes, if you own more than five dildos, you could be arrested. <laughs> I don't know. Why not six? Why not four? Well, I mean, what's a dildo? <laughs> and what you is know, a dildo? A couple of cucumbers in the uh, vegetable tray in the fridge. I don't know. <laughs> uh, just batshit. Yeah, it is batshit. Um, so what's the best thing for you about being gay? What has been the best thing about it? Besides the sex, but... <laughs> That's, that's the thing that hooked me a long time ago. Um, <laughs> Power to be, baby. It was so funny. You were talking about following the Danish women out to San Francisco, and my partner would say, the power of the V, baby, the power of the V. <laughs> <laughs> power of the V? The V. Oh, the oh, right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And that accent. Um, uh, the best thing about being gay is I think once you cross that line and you cease kowtowing to or succumbing to other people's opinion of you, you say, you know, you were, you're still Anne-Marie no matter who you go home to at night, right? Right. And I felt like I'm a good, I'm a good earnest person, you know, who loves poetry, has been a top-notch sister to my younger siblings, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly, if people were to find out this about me, I would lose any credibility that I had, any value that I had, and be rendered a big P for perv mm -hmm. and somebody to avoid or to stare at across the room as a pariah, mm -hmm. you know, as some kind of freakish oddball and I think that crossing the line where I just had to be true to myself going to see the psychiatrist telling people coming out to my friends and you don't come out just once no it's a never-ending journey it is. <laughs> but then again maybe you do because the first person you come out to is yourself mm -hmm. and and that's the line I'm talking about crossing no more um, uh, you know, wobbling around with it when you're, when you do come out, whether you're an older person or a young person, you know. You know, for me, I don't call it the line. I call it the heteronormative paradigm. Once you... <laughs> you can call it that too. What yeah. you like say, okay, I am not going to stay within this paradigm anymore. That's right. That's you're right. like, I can do what, I, 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 like, it just doesn't, things that used to, I mean, I was in that world for so long and things that used to matter so much to me just doesn't, they don't well, matter. Yeah. Once yeah. you've, once you've like blown up your fucking life, <laughs> really, that's, like sometimes, that's yeah. And it's so funny because sometimes like, sometimes, uh, you know, like, I'm like, since I, I'm like fearless, like I, I blew up my life and I survived. 
And, and I thrived, actually. I not only survived, I thrived. You so, to yourself. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, and so nothing scares me anymore. I can be a little bit too loud and opinionated, but I was like that when I was still living my straight life. <laughs> so, yeah. You just, maybe you don't stand out as much, but that's, that's. <laughs> no, I don't feel like I do. But, you know, it's funny because there's certain roles women have to play. Mm-hmm. And once you decide you're not going to play the game anymore of those roles, and once you enter queer, you know, queer society, you don't, the, 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 the roles just like the gender roles fall away sometimes. And, you know, and, and, and not saying that every, it happens with everybody. And I think I've also had the particular blessing of coming out later. So my friends that are gay have been out for a long time and they're in their 50s, 60s and 70s and they have wisdom. So I didn't get, to, I didn't have to put up with all the bullshit of the youth stuff, you know, where people were just figuring things out. I mean, the women I have become friends with and the men have, you know, they're all older and they have wisdom and they're calmer, I think. And, you know, they've thought about this stuff and while I think when you're younger you're just trying to figure out life and how to navigate life and you know you don't have that wisdom yet and you want all of it when you're young you want Mm -hmm. so much you want to grab that life you want to grab all the lovers you can possibly Mm -hmm. have I agree and by the time you're 60s 50s 60s 70s early yeah I'm just turned 70 uh about uh Happy birthday. I can't even remember now, maybe a month ago. And um, you've had, you know, you've, you've saturated yourself. Right. For those of us who have that kind of heart and that kind of soul and that kind of curiosity and, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. desire. And, um, uh, you know, now, but hopefully at this point, you go on to other things. My writing is so, you know, and I have a friend who's, my age, who I've known since the, have been friends with since the uh, uh, third grade, and she's doing hospice work now, mm-hmm. and uh, and I see other people who are older, and you know they just sort of like fade out, you know they mm-hmm. flame out. Well, there was a flame, but I think for for for, for being gay for me taught me to honor myself. Mm-hmm. And to love myself and have compassion for myself for everything I've been through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that along the way in a, in a person's life, you have places where you can just stop. You know, mm-hmm. you don't, I could have gone back to Nashville in San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, when I was starting to feel freaked out about, about HIV. But I didn't. And I stayed. And, and, and my friend who looked at me that night in the restaurant and said, you can't leave, Judy. Your gay brothers are dying. And I thought I can't leave, and I've started to educate myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through con- the conscious living, conscious dying movement. Mm-hmm. And um, and I learned to sit with death. I learned to be present for death, and to be present with my own fears. Mm-hmm. And it. Uh, everything in my life changed. I wasn't afraid anymore. Yeah. Well, when you sit with death, as somebody who sat with, has sat with death a lot, you, once you make friends with it, it's like, that's another thing too. You're like, because it's, it's the eventuality for all of us. We are all. Yes. Yeah. 
So if hey, I don't want to live forever anyway. <laughs> it's so funny. My daughter and I were talking the other day and there was somebody who got a COVID shot with that was 107. And oh. so I said to her, I said, that if that was me, I'd be 107. And, her, and we were joking because her daughter was in her 80s. And I said, you'd be 80 and I'd be 107. And we both <laughs> looked at each other and went, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do it either. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's too much. All right. So three of my three questions. Did you have a coming out song? back in the day. Yeah, you know, I kind of did, but it, it was uh, uh, Stairway to Heaven ah. by Zeppelin. And uh, still my karaoke signature song. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and movie, did you mention movie? Yep, I yeah. was gonna say, what was like a movie or a book that really just changed your view on life itself? Movie, I think, um, probably Cabaret. Oh, Cabaret, that's one of my favorite. I know, I love that movie. I saw it on Broadway with um, the young, who plays him now? Who plays the MC now? Um, Alan Cummings, saw it on Broadway with Alan Cummings. Unbelievable. Best Broadway, I've seen about 50 Broadway shows, best one of my life. <laughs> Did Alan Cummings play uh, the part, Joel Gray part? The, yeah. Mm -hmm. So why, quick question, why did you like Cabaret so much? Why did it change your perspective? Because you had this beautiful uh, German aristocrat, right? And you had Michael York, you know, kind of down at the heels, you know, Brit, intellectual. And when he says, Michael York's character says, Screw Max mm -hmm. and um, what's her name? Sally Bowles. Um, who says, um, looks at him. She's up trying to find a shoe on top of this thing, this cat, this uh, wardrobe. And um, uh, she says, I do. And Michael York says, So do I. <laughs> and for me, it, it's it when I saw that movie, when it came out, we would all go, me and my group of gay friends that I mentioned earlier, we would all sit at the billboard, of course. And, um, uh, and I just thought, it's, you can't tell, you know, and he has this, and, and Max, he's married, but his wife has her life over here. It was very worldly. It was a very worldly film to me. It was one that combined poor British intellectual Berlin's, you know, and Sally Bowles with her ambition that you know she's not going to be a great star, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and her father ignores her and so forth. And, and um, Max, who occupies the uh, an, an, an aristocracy, mm -hmm. well, and, and I can imagine for you and your friends back then that thirst to see yourself on the screen, yeah, even if even if it was just one line in a play. Yeah. You know, when somebody says, I do too, you know, it, it's like, oh my God, there's me. And, you know, yes, and that, exactly. and that's exactly. why it's so important for, um, for, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, representation in the media all the time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and look how far we've come. <laughs> you know? Where representation in films at that time, somebody was left on the floor to, to 
drown and a boys in the band you you but you will always be gay or you'll always be a homosexual michael yes and and i thought oh god i remember going on a date with one of my boyfriends to watch that it was again at the Belcourt, and, and thinking i will i'll always and i knew inside i'll always be a, i'll always be a homosexual well yeah and then we were talking Tom and i were taught my partner and i were talking about the children's hour oh uh, god yes. and the tree falls on the butch woman <laughs> That was the ox as the tree falls on Sandy Dennis. She's got to be killed. And then, the, but the worst by Lillian Hellman of all people, who was a worldly, you know, there's, who was it? Um, it was uh, one of them. It was uh, Shirley MacLaine. It was Shirley MacLaine who It was Shirley MacLaine and um, Audrey, Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. God, I would have hung around for Audrey Hepburn under any circumstance. Forget okay. <laughs> Last question. Um, how would you describe your life today? Uh, just part of a continuing adventure uh, that requires uh, my faith and my integrity mm -hmm. and my ability to suspend disbelief. <laughs> which is very, very necessary these days. <laughs> Judy, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, I really, really enjoyed it. I'd love to talk to you some more. It was really an interesting conversation. Uh, thank you, Anne-Marie. It was a pleasure yes. to use my computer for something besides. <laughs> it was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for asking me. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome.